0: There is hope for us yet. We are young, we are wet. I am Holly Whitaker. And I am Dora. No and baby, this is Home Podcast. So, so you guys, this is what's been happening. I am the tech master. I am the editor and the recorder. Of, of this podcast. Starting about Maybe a month ago, we started to record an Eating Disorders episode that somehow turned into me sounding like a chipmunk chipmunk Mm -hmm. on my side, which was then followed by an interview with Glennon that... Doyle. Glennon Melton Doyle. No. Doyle Doyle, Doyle, Melton. Melton. mm, Glennon Doyle Melton. Just Glennon. Glennon. G. G. um, Second interview about her book, don't mention who the first one, and... I failed to record that. I failed to record that interview, and then just now recording this intro. Oh no! And let's not even talk about the one I lost yesterday. And then this, and now recording this intro. Um, I forgot to hit record. So this
1: is the second time we've done it, and I just <laughs> fired Holly from her this part of her job. So, um, so that's great. I think we all feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's
0: yeah. tired. I'm not going to be on here anymore. Um, um,
1: but that's cool. We're going to go our separate ways for a while after this. But first, <laughs> we're going to talk no, about... No, not...
0: Like, we're, you're going to go on a... Let's be clear. Not We're not... For a couple hours. For a couple of hours. I'm going to go on a run. Laura's in L.A. She's going to go on a run. I'm going to go to a coffee shop. And yeah. we're going to make voodoo dolls of each other in <laughs> our respective locations and curse one another. Stop anyway. Um, so, yeah. So... On with today's show, As mm-hmm. uh, we are interviewing... Last week, we got to interview my new friend, uh, Jeff DeFlavio, who is the founder of what is now known as Recover Together, but is shortly going to be rebranded as Groups. Um, Jeff is somebody that I was put in touch with, with a mutual friend of ours, um, Steve, and... The way I came to know Jeff's work is because what he's doing is is essentially, like, my passion, which is creating affordable and effective resources for recovery from addiction. Now, Jeff specifically focuses on opiate addiction, and Laura and I, you know, wanted to have him on, first of all, because of he's doing something phenomenal in this space and actually making great change, one human making very big change, but also because uh, he understands uh, opiate addiction, suboxone treatment, uh, and it's something that we've actually never talked about on this show Mm -hmm. um so what jeff is doing is he's essentially with his company uh going into the underserved population so i think he was talking about how rural areas where where opiate addiction is is epidemic and and um there is absolutely no sort of treatment modalities um outside of uh, 12-step programs but even there it's pretty sparse um He is going into rural areas where I think he said that some ninety percent of all of all opiate addiction um, treatment centers are in urban areas. But he's going to where the source of the problem is, and he's starting these recovery centers that involve suboxone treatment, which is drug replacement therapy, Um, and as well as suboxone,
1: right? Sometimes sometimes suboxone, uh, sometimes other drugs. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: suboxone, and then the other one I can't. Buprenorphine. I can't. Is that right? I don't know. Anyway, so he's providing essentially drug replacement therapy, but also he's providing uh, group support, group therapy, and so uh, and and is doing a phenomenal job. He's got ten centers open and is uh, planning to open many more. And so, um, we brought him on to talk about what he's doing about the uh, opiate addiction epidemic, both pills and heroin, um, and to discuss essentially what effective treatments are available, change in treatments, all of of the issues that we have around getting these particular drugs into the hands of people that need them in order to recover any sort of controversy around the issues and all sorts of just
1: yeah. really and interesting his own personal stuff. Story. He's a doctor who thought of this when he was in medical, was in medical school. school, so yeah. he's got a really uh, unique and special background. Yeah, in coming into it.
0: Yeah, so um, without further ado, here is Jeff DeFlavios, uh, founder and CEO of. Groups. I recorded it. You're so pretty. Hey, Jeff.
2: Hello, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I know. It's awesome. Um, we just met last week. Are you in... Uh, I hear birds tripping. Are there birds
1: in your office? They're probably my birds. Oh. Okay. Sorry.
2: I have seen birds yeah. Sitting in a little oh. courtyard.
1: Oh. <laughs> Oh, they're probably yours then.
0: You're sitting in a courtyard?
2: Yeah, I, I think they're probably all, are birds, we can say. <laughs> Maybe you have, yeah. That's great.
0: Yeah, because I normally don't hear birds in your background, Laura. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. So, um, Jeff, why don't you, I, instead of me trying to explain um, who you are and what you do, why don't you start by kind of explaining um, what you what you currently are doing, um, and how you came to do it.
2: Sure. So, I, I'm the founder of Groups, which is a medical practice that treats opiate addiction. Um, and our, our practice is really based on trying to take the best aspects of AA, uh, the community and fellowship and mutual accountability that people experience there, and combining it with modern medical science and uh, medication so that folks can join a community of other people like them who understand the problems that they face and and recover together
0: okay and you are you're specifically focused on you're specifically focused on opiate on recovery from opiate addiction right
2: yes yeah that's our that's our niche
0: okay and you do and primarily you're working with population that is dealing with is it heroin or is it prescription like what's the what's the um, mm.
2: So, so opiate addiction in this country has been fueled by a rise in the um, use and prescription of painkillers like OxyContin and heroin, Mm -hmm. and and it's uh, disproportionately reflected in rural areas. Mm -hmm. So, the majority of our patients live in small towns, um, right now all in uh, Ohio, Maine, and New Hampshire, and they, um, about half of them have used IV drugs in the past, and the other half of just only ever used uh, prescription painkillers.
0: Okay. And what's so significant about your program is, what are the options if you guys didn't exist in these areas? What are the options for for people that are going through something like trying to break an opiate addiction, and specifically in the areas that you're dealing with?
2: So one of the things that's been particularly tragic about the opiate epidemic is that there, there has historically been quite a bit of treatment infrastructure for opiate addiction um, in the form of... Of methadone clinics and inpatient facilities. Um, and those have certainly been overwhelmed by the surge in need that we've seen in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. But all of those facilities are really disproportionately located in urban areas, over, over 90% of them are. Mm-hmm. So for people living in rural places um, in this country, it's very difficult to access high quality treatment. And they uh, they very typically, typically go without. So even though three quarters of the Opiate addiction is in rural and suburban America. Only 10% of the treatment capacity is there. So most of the towns that we're in um, are the only option for treatment um, that is evidence-based and uses, you know, effective medications. Um, We are in some urban areas where there are other options for people, but that's, uh, it's, the system is still swamped.
0: And what is, okay, so, okay. So uh, the opiate, um, the opiate uh, epidemic, I have not, I'm not, i way more focused on alcohol. So can you kind of, um, can you explain a little bit about that? I know that it's, I know the surge, right? And I know that, I know that it's blown up in the last 10 years, but can you maybe like break it down in numbers and also, um, and just give your, uh, explain why, what's what's behind it?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, the, the current opiate epidemic that we're in um, really, Started in the late '90s with the introduction of new um, painkiller medications, uh, in particular OxyContin, mm-hmm. and OxyContin yeah. was um, part of kind of a long drive in research to to find opiates um, and painkiller, particularly painkillers that were not addictive, um, and there you know, has been a lot written about the quality of the research that was published um, and the, the way that those drugs were marketed. But essentially, the, the short story is that there was a concerted attempt by pharmaceutical companies to retrain doctors um, and educate them about pain, which I think, you know, to some extent was legitimate. There was a lot of untreated pain in this country, particularly among um, people suffering from cancer or other debilitating diseases. And notoriously pain became the fifth vital sign in the hospital so along with blood pressure and heart rate and respiratory rate um, everyone got asked what their pain level was and there was not physicians were not savvy at that point to the fact that OxyContin like like any opiate uh, is highly addictive and we've seen a tremendous increase in the number of prescriptions that were written, um, really astronomical. And it's been going on for about 20 years. They've been steadily increasing. Um, and in the past four or five years, we've really started to see the fallout from that. Um, we've seen skyrocketing overdose rates, um, in a number of communities all across the country, really anywhere you go these days, folks um, know people who have suffered, suffered from this disease. And, and the topography is the source of opiates and the cause of addiction is now different. Uh, 40 years ago in the late 60s, early 70s, during the last heroin epidemic, your typical user was a teenage male of color who mm-hmm. the first uh, first drugs that he tried were IV. And now, yeah. you know, your typical first time user is someone in their um, mid-20s who's white, who lives in a small town. And they first mm-hmm. tried set from a friend, or they most likely got a prescription from their doctor at some point.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this is what I find to be so fascinating about this because, like, one of the things that um, we'll get into a lot of this different stuff, but one of the things that just was um, became obvious to me after I got sober was because I was still in the healthcare industry. I was uh, I was uh, looking for doctors to talk to my own network who were addiction specialists and no one that I knew and I knew many doctors no one that I knew knew was an addiction specialist or knew about it, but the but the other pieces of it was that they were already they were able to write prescriptions for drugs mm-hmm. that caused addiction, and then at the same time as well, they as a as a practice, um, you cut people off, right? You cut people off yep. that that you identify as pill pill seekers, um, and so it just is this this like I had this kind of um, very big realization back then that like. You know, our doctors are not, tra- like, most of the, you know, the extent of, of a, you know, primary care physician, um, the extent of their training in addiction medicine is is going to a 12-step meeting, right? I mean, that's, is that still?
2: Yeah. Yeah. At best, yeah.
0: At best, and they're writing drug, or writing prescriptions for highly addictive Drugs, and then they don't know how to take care of people once they've become addicted, and then also they cut them off from the supply once they become addicted, and then the addicted population does what? They turn and, and 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 this is what you've seen in your work, right? They turn to the streets. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. So I think that um, unfortunately, the prescription of opiates historically has kind of oscillated, where doctors are very generous, and then when they sense that something's wrong, um, their response is to. Cut the person off. And I understand that. Uh, that I understand why that makes sense uh, on some level. But the thing is, when there is no treatment capacity for opiate addiction, folks only have one option, which is right. to go buy, buy drugs illegally. So what we've seen in the past three years um, is actually a reasonable decline in the number of opiate prescriptions that are being written, um, on the order of a little bit more than ten percent from a peak in 2013, and that's directly coincided with a large spike in, in overdoses because people are, you know, pill mills are being shut down and doctors are being more responsible, um, but we already have, you know, the horses out of the barn and there are already so many people who are addicted that they switch to heroin or fentanyl or whatever they can get their hands on. Um, can
1: you, uh, we kind of skipped past this part, but can you tell us how you ended up doing this?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, everybody who's in the kind of needs needs to have some kind of reason for being here, because um, we all have our own journeys into this part of the part of the. I mean, in my case, part of medicine that is um, really ignored by by a lot of folks. Um, I got into this when I was a medical student at at Dartmouth. Um, I was working in in, in New Hampshire um, yep. at. A few different primary care clinics, and I was overwhelmed by the fact that every time I was I was in clinic every single day, I was seeing multiple patients who were addicted to prescription painkillers or or heroin and had the signs of you know either because they had soft tissue infections or or hepatitis or whatever kind of um, sequela you would you would normally see. It was so prevalent, and I was blown away by the fact that these folks had nowhere to go. And what's particularly sad about the lack of treatment for opiate addiction is that we have better medications for opiate addiction than any other addiction that exists, better than alcohol or cocaine or methamphetamines. We have approaches that we can use that are excellent. Um, and unfortunately, we, those those drugs just currently don't exist with the same efficacy for other types of problems. And
0: you're talking those, about suboxone, right? Is that or and
2: methadone? I'm talking about, I'm talking about a class, kind of, um, yeah. what's referred to as medication-assisted treatment, which includes both suboxone, buprenorphine, and uh, those are the same thing, and methadone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And particularly in rural areas, I mean, buprenorphine, in my opinion, is the answer because for a methadone clinic, you know, you have to you have to go every day the first few years, um, and treatment duration is typically very long, um, and, you know, those centers are regulated in such a way where they end up always being, you know, several hundred patients at least, um, if not more like 500 or 1,000, and small rural areas just can't accommodate that type of scale. So part of the mission of groups is to go out into these communities where larger larger facilities really can't operate and, and provide high quality treatment.
1: Okay. So you're, you're in, this is when you're in medical school and you're, I'm just going back to the history. Okay. So you're in medical school and you're, you're seeing these patients who, is it, they're coming in like, you just know, like you're identifying that they're it addict in active addiction because you know, certain signs, but I mean, was this a discussion that you have with them or with your, you know, the physicians that you're working with?
2: Yeah, a lot, a lot. And one of the things I'm really struck by, um, at that point, and I think it's gotten substantially better in the last couple of years is the level of denial that exists in the, in the medical community about relationships you know, that people have to particular patients. Um, I think if you've had someone as a patient for 20 years and you have been, you know, unwittingly, as a physician, part of the development of their opiate addiction, um, even right. if at one point... And, and I think that the back story here is that a lot of these people did really have very legitimate pain. And the standard yeah. of care at the time was to prescribe, prescribe those medications. So doctors... Um, it's very difficult to, it's very difficult to admit that to yourself. And there's certain complicity, um, on everyone's part where the, the patient certainly doesn't want the physician to know, and maybe doesn't even blame the physician knows that they were trying to help them. Um, so there's a lot of kind of, you know, everybody covering their eyes and ears. Um, so I was really, yeah, and by, that's
1: unique. I mean, that I want to like put a point on that cause that's so unique. Cause that's not, you know, that's, that's not a dynamic that is experiencing alcohol addiction and certainly other kinds, but it's so different because it's not prescribed, you know, you can get alcohol anywhere and then, and then a lot of other drugs are just illegal. So it's Mm -hmm. like a really interesting and unique piece of it. I hadn't really thought of before.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, I think it's been a unique challenge for the medical community and it's taken us a long time to recognize our role in, Creating the epidemic, and now we're still everyone's still trying to figure out what the physician role is, and this is really where my work centers is figuring out what the physician role is um, to end this epidemic beyond just not prescribing so many opiates because there's a very yeah. important treatment role for doctors to play.
1: okay, well, so go on <laughs> sort of how this <laughs> develops
2: <then. laughs> no, yeah so so um you know you mentioned before that you know, you go to see primary care physicians and they're typically not trained in addiction. Um, and one of the things that I've found that's so striking is that the overwhelming majority of primary care doctors view treatment for addiction as part of their mandate. I mean, they're they're responsible for caring for the whole person. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they want to do this work. Um, they just don't know how. Mm-hmm. And they're typically stuck in practice settings, um, either in a solo practice where they have very minimal support staff or in a group practice, which is part of a larger hospital that can be sclerotic and slow to change. And they, um, they struggle to work within the systems that exist to provide this type of care because these are patients that require um, specialized clinical systems. Mm-hmm. So what, what groups does is it provides a standalone clinic where primary care doctors can come and work as part of our clinical system, which has been honed you know, over innumerable patient encounters, um, and prov- be confident that they're providing really high-quality care at a price that patients can afford. Um, and our, our mandate is really to expand the number of doctors who treat this type of disease because there are not enough psychiatrists to do the work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you don't mind, I just want to fill in one more sure. gap because, uh, or a couple more gaps. So you, so you, you, you saw this, this challenge obviously, and then you went ahead and developed, you founded groups yes. and how, um, you know, how, how is that? Like, what were some of the things that you knew needed to happen if you, in order to make this work and what were sort of the, um, I mean, what's it been like from a treatment perspective too?
2: I think one of the most challenging parts of forming a new addiction treatment practice has been unlearning a lot of the received wisdom, um, oftentimes, which is presented as scientific about what the nature of recovery is and what are the real, what are the real drivers of success for people? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that despite there being tremendous advances in the medications that are available for treatment of opiate addiction, um, it, like the other addiction disciplines, is really still grounded ultimately in an AA-based model of, um, of sobriety, where the kind of, I mean, on the AA model, the, the, the alcoholic is viewed as having an allergy Alcohol they're formally located in both the body and the mind, and because of that allergy, they need to abstain from all substances, because who knows what will trigger it, um, and they need to get to a place where, you know, they don't use any substances, um, because they always have been and always will be an alcoholic. And I think that is, you know, a highly moralized attitude towards towards recovery that, is not borne out in most or a lot of people's lives. And that to provide medical care, one of the first things we needed to do was figure out what outcomes we wanted to measure and what success looked like and define that with our patients and then pursue that.
0: And how did you define that? (sighs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I think that... (laughs) Yeah, so so the way that we really measure it is around functional improvement and um, reduction in drug use and people getting their lives back. Um, I think that, you know, heroin addiction is really something that can, that can happen to anyone. Um, anyone who were to use heroin would become addicted to it. Certainly people have social or biological predispositions towards addiction, but that's really secondary um, when you're dealing with a drug that's so powerful. So I think um, one of the biggest things for us has been focusing on um, a treatment timeline with patients that From the very beginning, gets everyone oriented towards treatment that lasts 18 months to two years. Um, Sometimes folks need longer periods of maintenance medication with Suboxone or Methadone, but I think for a lot of people, especially folks who have not used IV drugs, um, when they're given the chance in a treatment program to conceive of themselves as someone who can be better in a couple of years, that's exciting. And they're not gonna be permanently confined to to a methadone clinic for, you know, decades. Um, So I think that's been the biggest thing is really, really identifying that as a goal with patients and then, and then really being critical about what does sobriety mean, Um, you know, and focusing on opiates and alcohol and highly addictive substances.
1: So we probably both have a lot of questions. When you say reduction in drug use, like, is the end goal not abstinence of drug use
2: I think that it is pretty reasonable to expect that someone who has been addicted to IV drugs and needs um, maintenance therapy for a period of years should mm-hmm. pursue a period of total abstinence. Um, yeah. I think that when you look at specific cases, though, and I think specifically when we're talking about marijuana. There are people who make different types of decisions about what they want their sobriety to look like. And, you know, my kind of early finding in this when I was running this practice really by myself was when you're talking to someone who was shooting up two months ago and now all they're doing is smoking pot and taking suboxone. It is and they have their life together and they're telling you that they're fine. It is pretty paternalistic to tell them that they're not allowed to come to treatment anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, oh sure,
1: it's, it's, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, doing, so um, that really kind of set us off down this road to try to be a little bit I don't know what else to call it besides common sense, although certainly that's you know obscuring a lot of reasoning, but <laughs> it's uh it's it's, it's pretty reasonable. Well, it's a harm
0: reduction model. I mean, you're you're not just an abstinence based model where, where it's that's you know the only you know it's your way or the highway. You're you're actually engaging with people, meeting them where they're at, and helping them through a process to achieve goals that are specific to themselves without sugarcoating it. You know, right?
2: Exactly. But, but exactly. it's a harm
0: reduction model. So, do you get my biggest question about this is because you're practicing harm reduction, and because you're you know also using Suboxone, and do you tend to get? Um, I mean, these are things you know. These type of models are things that have been used, not necessarily. I mean, methadone has been used in the United States, but these these are these are not necessarily um, applauded methods, right? It's we're we're kind of an abstinence based you know approach um, mm. model. So, do you get do you get pushback from anybody? And, so, and if so, or, or, you know, like, do you have people, do you have people, I don't even know i to say it, Other, you know, like, do you have people attacking your work or your methods or, you know, from any angle, be it government or, or interest groups or, I mean, do you have, do you deal with any of that? Do you have to defend a harm reduction model? Yeah,
2: yeah, sure. So um, the first thing I would say is that I don't conceive of what we do as based in harm reduction. And I actually kind of object so to that term. Because I think that I think that people, lab, you know, there is a lot of good harm reduction work that we do. Like, we um, have a needle exchange that we operate. Um, and that is clearly harm reduction work. But I think that to call it harm reduction gives too much credit to this outdated uh, and non-scientific version of sobriety mm. that is, you know, based in this AA, AA ideology. So it's only harm reduction if that's something less than full recovery. And I don't think that that's, I think that we're going for full recovery with everybody, employment, relationships with your family, um, purpose in your life. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, so I, I really don't think of it as harm reduction, but I understand why someone might label it that if, they're, if they have a different expectation for what sobriety looks like. Got it, yeah.
0: And then on the pushback or on the um, having to having to defend um, having to defend it is there because it's not a traditional approach. Do you do you deal with that?
2: We don't really get any pushback about a clinical model because we get really great results. I mean, the thing about combining the medications that we use um, with group therapy is that powerful tools for recovering from opiate addiction. So you get much higher retention. Um, you get clinical interaction, interactions. It's really rewarding for people. It's not sitting alone with a doctor. Um, it's you know talking to a group of people that understand you. So anyone who comes to group um, and and experiences that is very positive about about the treatment model. Where we get a lot more pushback is on part of our model um, which has to do with payment. So we currently don't accept insurance. Mm -hmm. And we charge our patients uh, $65 a week, um, which includes coming to to therapy every week and um, a prescription for buprenorphine, along with um, all of the compliance and monitoring that goes with running a program like this. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we chose to do that is because the Medicaid reimbursement rates are so low for this type of care that you can't get physicians to do the work for the amount that they'll pay you. And the only that you can even come close is to build a system which is really just has all this unnecessary stuff tacked on where you bill a ton for processing people's urines and all this bogus stuff that I don't want to be involved with. And my my hope is that by providing people um, with treatment that they can afford, um, we solve the accessibility problem. Because what's the difference between something being you know free and affordable? Um, you know, If it's affordable, people can still get it. And people can still get better. And I trust that our patients know what works for them and are picking uh, the solution that's gonna help them, and that's that's why they're with us. But where where we get pushback is on that, where folks who kind of feel that um and I understand why the 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 inclination that you know this type of care should be free, it should be paid for by the government or for charity, and I I do support that. Um, it's just unfortunate that the you know, hospital systems of this country and the nonprofits and the government have not stepped up and provided enough care. So we don't really have any other option and we just can't
1: wait. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not even episode. That's an entirely different podcast. Yeah. Um so what what a I you, you talked about some of you know some of the the challenges that you get like what how long ago did you start this when did you start it
2: I want you to say so started uh, seeing patients in February of 2014 so a little bit more than two years ago
1: okay so it's new so you're so you're, pretty you're still pretty new yeah but you you've got a ton of um, or at least quite a few centers it looks like and you're. You know what's sort of your vision for for how this evolves? What would you like it to to look like?
2: So, um, you know, I really started this medical practice because I thought that the opiate epidemic existed on such a scale that it really needed to be met with scale. I was never content mm-hmm. to try to start a program that served fifty people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we're up to 10 centers, um, and almost a thousand patients a week that we see across those. And, um, we are aiming to be, you know, 10 or a hundred times larger in the next five years. Um, because just to give some kind of demographic background, there are about two and a half million people, um, who are addicted to prescription painkillers. Like I said, the overwhelming majority in rural and suburban America and a million and a half of those people can't get access to treatment. Um, so even for us to scale to, you know, tens of thousands or a hundred thousand patients, just barely begins to make a dent.
1: Barely, yeah. In the
2: in the treatment capacity that we need, um, so that's really what our organization has been built around. It's been built around um, an imperative for speed and action, and recognizing that if you're not in a town, you know, people people don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah.
1: Yep. What what I'm jumping around a little bit here, but you talked sure. a little bit about about AA and the sort of the community, um, the community being a, a big tool in what you provide and what so so these are not NA meetings or AA meetings. No. They're no. your own method, and they're led by who.
2: They're led by trained addiction counselors, so not by lay people, although we do have peer-to-peer groups at our facilities that people um, participate in. Uh, yeah. Um, that are by folks in recovery. Um, yeah. I think, you know, what we're drawing, what we're drawing, you know, AA, for all of its faults, has saved so many lives and mm-hmm. is one of the most successful uh kind of organizations in the world in terms of the growth that it's had and the impact that it's had on people. And I think the core reason for that, um, is not actually because of, because of the 12 steps. Um, but it's because of the community and fellowship that exists between people. And it's Mm -hmm. because of uh, what, what they call service in AA, but, you know, really proselytizing and getting the word out and helping other people get into recovery, you know, helps people build meaningful lives, Um, and that is, that's absolutely true. Um, so what we've really tried to do is bring over that, that ethos into our organization, um, and create something that is more compassionate and more understanding and not so focused on everyone's faults and, uh, breaking down of kind of the ego or recognizing that, something fundamentally biologically wrong with you or wrong with your character, but instead that, you know, opiates are tremendously addictive drugs. And if you want to change your life, you can, you can be part of a group of other people who are going to help you figure out how to do that.
1: Mm.
0: Do you you have a, a standard, like how do you promote something like that? Do you get, like, how do you, throughout your clinics, do you have a, how do you approach that? The, the,
2: the group coaching, so, and the, or not the group coaching, yeah. the group therapy and the, and the individual therapy. Yeah, so the, the key is really in, um, so there are some fundamental differences between individual and group therapy um, from the mm-hmm. facilitator's perspective. Um, and, you know, individual therapy is a lot of work. It requires, you know, you're, you're talking to one person. Group therapy is kind of deceptively simple sometimes, where when you have an excellent facilitator, it looks like they're really not doing anything. But they've built a culture, <laughs> yeah. among, their, built a culture among their group of folks to help them build a culture so that everyone takes ownership. And what ends up happening is the most important thera- therapeutic moments happen between people in recovery. Um, they don't yeah. happen between a doctor and a patient or counselor and a patient. They happen because people can speak frankly to each other and they have an authority and knowledge that, you know, a lot of times medical professionals don't have. So it's about creating those communities so that you get to the point where after months of being together, where if the counselor doesn't show up, the group would still run the same way. Um, Mm. And, and people feel compelled to be honest with each other because, because they love for each other and care for each other. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so are these group? are, is this like meetings for that? I don't know another word to call it community groups, um, group mm-hmm. therapy that, um, that people that can exist outside in some form, outside of your clinics in some formal way. Like, has, have you, has, is there anything like that yet?
2: So I think what's, what's really interesting, um, is when we when we see a new group form, um, very often multiple people in the group already know each other. Because keep mm-hmm. in mind that we're in, most mm-hmm. of our clinics are in towns that are, you know, <laughs> They've seen each times.
1: other around, right?
2: They've seen each other around. They've grew up, they went to elementary school together. If you've yeah. been using drugs in the small community for a long time, you know a lot of people yeah. who are in the same position yeah. as you. So what I'm struck by is that a lot of the times we're building community, a lot of the time we're just reactivating community that already exists. Um Here. And people come in and are blown away and seen someone in years, and they're so happy that they're there um, and what's what's been so, what's so strange to me about how addiction treatment is currently provided is that um people, like I said, grew up together for years, used together for years, and then when they go in they're supposed to go by themselves and they're supposed to not talk to anyone and just you know <laughs> To, you know, just disappear. But if you're living in the same place, um, you need a network. You need to find the people that you already know who, mm-hmm. who have made the change that you have. And that's why I think it's so powerful for people to come together, particularly in small communities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. And I, I mean, it, it seems like, you know, maybe that's down the line or something, but it, I guess what, what I'm trying, to, what I am doing is putting myself in these and cause I, I have, I'm, an AA person and I've used that as part of my own recovery and um you know there, there's there's rituals and literature and um there's all kinds of you know there's a big book and there's reading and I'm wondering if if there's anything you know like have you developed has, has have certain phrases been developed you have literature are you um or you know and it There is no right answer to this. I'm just curious, you know, how that starts to take shape. Because I, I mean, my, the community, I 100% agree that the community aspect of it um, is the biggest part. But then there's also attachment to, you know, and every time you go to a meeting, you kind of know what's going to happen and you know, what's going to be read and you know, there are certain phrases and catch statements and all of that, that really become a language of recovery um, to people in AA anyway. So
2: I think that's tremendous. I think that's tremendously important. And um, I mean, another way of describing what you're talking about a bit is uh, the ritual. Of the community. Ritual, rituals, rituals right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, there are there are a lot of documents that we provide to patients that kind of over provide an overview of our treatment philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that I've been really wary of is um, putting a drawing too much of a line in the sand over kind of how the culture needs to work um sure. one of the things is that you know I found that I thought we were going to really need to build this this we were going to have to spend so much time building um a culture really and we, we have been very deliberate about a lot of decisions that we make in terms of who can attend group um under what circumstances and, and you know what type of curriculum we use but yeah. we also have inherited a lot just from the lives that these folks oh, have come sure. from previous and the conceptions that people have about addiction coming in. Um, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that's most striking is just to give you an example of the kind of limited control is, you know, we use, I use very sanitized language, um, when talking about opiate addiction. Um, I often, you know, describe it as opiate use cause I don't even think that addiction is a concept that's really relevant to a lot of people. Um, but when you talk to patients in clinics, you know words like junkie and, and addict are used a lot. And there's a line that you have to walk between saying to people, no, you're wrong. That's not how I want you to think about yourself. And also respecting that they're struggling with what society's conception of drug use is and kind of make space for people.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a wonderful point because you're absolutely right. Because there is a there is a part of it where you are helping to remove the stigma by by essentially, um, you know, removing certain words that have such such deep stigmatizations attached to them, like junkie, right, or or addict or alcoholic. Um, that are also like on some level self-fulfilling prophecies, and um, and and you know there's all, there's all sorts of baggage that comes with it. But at the same time, because I don't, I'm very clear about not using those those words. I'm very very careful in all of the literature that I put out and the way that I talk. Um, but at the same time you can't there you also people have permission to call themselves whatever whatever they whatever they need to or whatever helps them in their own process. And so I think that's such a like wonderful point because um we've talked about that. We've had you know episodes on labels and we have people that respond to that and just say this is imp- an important part of my identity, you know. Um I'm a drunk or right. whatever it is. Um
1: and um yeah and it's not negative but uh, yeah. No, I think that uh, I'm sure you <laughs> Yours is you're creating something new you know and and there are a thousand battles to be fought and I mean I'm sure it's always a matter of prioritization and reprioritization and absorbing and continuing to shape based on and I'm sure even by location it varies right
2: Yeah, and I think that um, you know there are just there are just different kind of uh you know depending on the economic of people who you're dealing with or the, the geography in the country um, people use a very different language and have very different um, very different things to make them comfortable yeah, and yeah. You're like, yeah. you never want to want to undermine that um, I think that unfortunately you know the way that most of that language gets used is not, in a second order way, when it's being reclaimed explicitly, like we've seen in a lot of uh, queer communities or uh, African American communities, but like it's just being used in a very first order way, uh, people describing themselves and really being down on themselves. But sometimes I think that it is a label that helps. That I mean, people need to process their experience, yep. and right. um, the trick is to give them to give people new language so that they can make sense of what's happening to um, and where they're going, uh, without relying on the tired old stereotypes that, that they've seen previously.
0: Yeah. Mm. I love it. That's so like So, um, Laura, do you have a question or do you want me to go? Go ahead. Okay. So I have just a couple more. The, f- um, I'm curious about, um, Again, I don't know a ton about um, about uh, opiate addiction and and recovery from it. So, is there is there, I feel like there's a controversy around Suboxone and the use of it. Is there or is there not? Am I making this up, or is that just related the to the use alcohol? of alcohol? Yeah, I
1: think I thought the controversy isn't it more just around any sort of medical treatment, methadone, Suboxone.
2: I don't know. That's um, what I'm asking. I think that I mean in terms of the the quote-unquote controversy, I think that that kind of dignifies it too much. Um, the, the, um, <laughs> the community, their, you know, medicated-assisted treatment, with buprenorphine or methadone is the gold standard. Um, it is far more effective when used on an outpatient basis than anything else that mm-hmm. can be done. Um, I think where the controversy comes in is that every, as we all know, everybody has the wrong recovery. And there are a lot of people, um, especially folks who are older, who uh, you know were using opiates in you know the sixties and seventies, um, who who got off of the drugs without without any any maintenance therapy, and oftentimes without even with you know support during withdrawal, and the perception that um, I, there there's also been a very controversial, I think rightfully so, um, perception of methanol. As a, as an effective yeah. treatment modality, because you see people there for so long, um, decades sometimes, uh, no, no longer than they're used to. So I see why. Um, once again, folks who got better without um, without using these medications have an abstinence-based mindset, um, and that that mindset protects them and is central to their own personal health. Why they find this controversial or. Um, they, don't, they see it as, you know, quote-unquote, trading one addiction for another. Um, right. Yeah. Which, which it's not, and fundamentally misunderstands addiction, in my opinion, because um, it's defined by a set of behaviors, not by dependence on a drug, physiologically. Um, but in that sense, it is kind of controversial.
0: Um, there's a weird noise. I don't know which one of you it is. It sounds like somebody's scratching the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh it's you texted me. me. Okay, it's Jeff. Thanks. Um
1: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It sounds
0: yeah, it sounds like it's scratching. <laughs> it does. Or anyway. Um so okay, so then why okay, so why then is Suboxone um I can't say the other one, buprenorphine, Um Buprenorphine. Yeah. Buprenorphine. Um, why is why are those more effective than uh, methadone? Why does methadone go on? Why is it maintenance forever, and why where do these two work over a period of a couple of years?
2: So, I think it has more to do with the history of the drugs um, than anything particularly scientific. Um, methadone was invented uh, in the sixties and first started being used in the in the late sixties, early seventies um, to treat opiate addiction and. It was a very progressive approach. It was um, it was pioneered by researchers who wanted to dispel this idea that, that drug users or alcoholics were, um, in the language of the time, uh, psychopaths, antisocial um, criminals, and that there was nothing wrong with their character, that actually this could be cured with drugs, because this was a purely biological problem, that drug hunger, um, which drove all this crime, and antisocial behavior was not a fault of the person's character so in the first paper on methadone um, you actually see on the first page the researchers say this is such an amazing treatment that people don't even need therapy isn't it amazing they're all better without even seeing a psychiatrist because it's just in their body and their attempt was they were trying to destigmatize drug use yeah Um, and i get that but the thing is this is not true So, so it just doesn't work so that launched us into a um, regulatory scheme for methadone, and you see very early on that you know methadone is primarily regulated by the DEA, um, not by, it's, it's regulated by law enforcement rather than by health um, healthcare, healthcare because it's there are concerns about urban black crime, and this is viewed as a way to control drug fiends um, and prevent them from committing crimes. So that's the history of methadone that grew up. And it's gotten a lot better over the years. There are there have been improvements that made, but it's still a system which is rooted, in my opinion, in a warehouse mentality where people come and they stay because they're broken. Yep. With buprenorphine, yep. with buprenorphine, from the very beginning, it was presented as a quote unquote less toxic alternative to methadone. Um it's not as strong, it's not uh it's not, you know, methadone is the full agonist in that when it binds to the opiate receptor, it sends a very powerful charge through that receptor. Buprenorphine, when it binds to an uh, opiate receptor in the brain or body, uh, sends a much weaker charge. And that's why folks can't really get high on it. And that's why coming off of, um, now some people might dispute this, but practically it's easier. And it um, takes a shorter period of time than tapering down from methadone um because it's just not as strong. Yeah. So there was a from the very beginning with buprenorphine there was a sense of okay this can be a superior medication because it doesn't create the same levels of dependence. And that's reflected it, it certainly does still cause physiological dependence. I don't want to suggest that it doesn't. But that's reflected in the regulatory structure um for each of the drugs in the country. So methadone is only available for opiate addiction in standalone methadone facilities, whereas buprenorphine can be prescribed. Um, out of
0: any doctor's office. Awesome! Oh my gosh! Awesome. Um, um, Laura, do you want to ask? I have one more question, kind of about so. So, actually, let me ask. Yeah, just while uh, we're on this thread, why? Okay, so why doesn't this? Why doesn't? Why doesn't drug replacement therapy work for for other? Why, why does it work so well for opiates? Why does it not work for alcohol? Why does it not work for for other for uppers? Um
2: yeah. That's an excellent question, and I, and I don't know, um. and I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> yeah, have been done, and this because it's really promising. And the thing is, you know, we essentially do drug replacement um, in for for alcoholism in the form of tapers with Librium or other types of benzos to help people with withdrawal um, symptoms and to keep them safe when they're withdrawing, uh, because unlike withdrawal from opiates. Uh, Withdrawal from alcohol can be deadly. Yeah. And yeah, and you know, but that's, that's like a not week. Maiden. That's like a week, yeah. That's a week. Yeah. And, and I don't think there's good, I, I think that it exposes kind of our lack of understanding of the physiological mechanisms that underlie addiction, that um, we don't know why maintenance um, only works for this, for this disease, but it works very well. And I think it works best when people are oriented towards it being a time limited event a person who has a problem, rather than a broken person who needs permanent, yeah, permanent replacement. Yeah. Sorry, I can't give you a better answer there. No, I wish.
0: no, it was, it was great. What it is? Yeah. And yeah. then, um, okay, so Laura, I want you to ask the these two, last two questions you have about the challenges and success. Um. Yeah. But I um. I'm curious. My last two questions: One is, there, the thing that like really um, that I was really surprised about. Johan Hari, when he started promoting his book, was talking about how all of the uh, Vietnam vets that were using heroin overseas came back to America and stopped using and stopped yeah. using opiates, yeah. and just like that. And yet, we also were looking at your, you know, you are building a resource and recovery um, solution because. Um, like his whole thing was like people are prescribed these medications and they just stop taking them all the time. Um, when they leave the hospital, um, which just for some reason to me, when I read it, it oversimplified things a little bit and it kind of, I don't know. It just, so I'm just curious of when you, I know you've heard, I know you've obviously heard about, you know, what the, the Vietnam vet, um, statistic, um, what are your thoughts on that? Why? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I think it's a really fascinating historical example. Um, I don't think it's a totally fair example because you're talking about people who are, who, in the case of the folks in Vietnam, they were ripped from all context, plunged into a living hell, and they were involved in a gruesome war that was totally inhumane, and they a lot of them used drugs in that context. When they came home and heroin was not readily available Um, it was not something they had done outside of that horrific context they had previously been in Mm. it's not surprising to me that it was bound by that situation especially when people have really meaningful work to return to and family to return to Mm -hmm. I think what's important to understand about the current context is that we talk so much about where the drugs come from um, and you know Crime, And we talk about the need for drug use or the demand for drugs really in kind of these deep character terms where it's like, oh, well, there are some people who just want to get high. But really, what, we've, what I see is a landscape of, um, you know, in the Rust Belt of America, when we've been faced with deindustrialization, very high, um, really permanent unemployment for a lot of people, um, a disintegration of of nuclear family and just a a confusing world that we've been plunged into. Mm -hmm. When you look at Appalachia, for example, which has been by far the worst affected region of the country by this, by this epidemic, um, they've had historically very high unemployment rates, very high poverty rates. Um, this is not a disease that, I mean, it can strike anyone, but the social terrain upon which, it operates is is very real so um in context of hopelessness and despair and in a society where if you're not working it's not really clear clear what you should be doing with your time um getting high plays a big role in people people dealing with that
0: yeah thank you for saying that yeah thank you okay i think that's all i've got i would like to know um Actually, I'll ask my last, and then Laura, I'll let you close it up. Um, okay, so for people that are listening to this, some of our listeners um, who might not be in your demographic, you know, they're not necessarily in, in rural areas, um, mm-hmm. but people, people that are listening to this that are struggling with an opiate addiction, um, what, do you, what do you do? What do you do to get good, you know, to basically get good drug replace, replacement therapy or programs that are similar to yours? Um, or do you have an answer to that?
2: No, I do. Um, okay. I think, I think the most the most important thing, um, not to not to oversimplify it, but is really just to start by being honest with yourself and think about you know what kind of change you want to make, and to not be afraid of medication-assisted treatment, thinking that it in some way implies that you're weak, um, or that you should somehow have the strength to do this on your own. Um, these are very difficult drugs to deal with, and the best thing that you can do is to find a, um, a clinic that will provide you with um, either suboxone or methadone replacement therapy, and when you go in, be really clear about what your goals are and what kind of a life you're hoping to, to build for yourself, um, and know that the reason why using these medications doesn't make you weak is because it's still very difficult. You know, these, these drugs don't do the work for you. Um, you have to figure out what it is that matters to you and is going to kind of replace the hole in your life that you filled with drugs. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that doesn't get any easier no matter what type of help you get, but you're Mm -hmm. most likely going to be successful if you find a physician who you trust, who um, is prepared to use the best medications available to help you,
0: and, and all, can all physicians? Is there specific physicians that can um, sub, uh, subscribe prescribe, or is it like how do you find it?
2: How do you find a doctor that can do it? So or that knows how to do it. Um, yes, so that is that is easier said than done. Um the there are treatment locators online that are run by SAMHSA and other um substance abuse mental health administration and other government entities that can help you find licensed providers. In urban areas, you're gonna have a better chance of finding someone who has spots. Mm-hmm. Um but it's gonna require a lot of diligence because given the given the lack of treatment that's available, um, you know. It's, it's, it's not easy to find and someone to help you. The, the one thing I would add is that if you can't get into a um, medication assisted treatment program, that doesn't mean that you should do nothing um, going to other types of therapy while it may be less effective on the whole, depending on where you are, depending on what your substance use history has been like um, and what kind of changes you want to make that's not necessarily the best solution for everybody. And there, there, are other, there are other options. And going to 28-day inpatient rehab, well, it doesn't have the success rate of buprenorphine or methadone, it certainly does work for a lot of people. So don't let um, a lack of access to these types of medications be just another excuse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Laura. Laura.
1: Okay, so we 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 know we're coming in on the hour. So we just ha- I have two questions. Uh, one is just what you've seen in the individuals that you have treated, you know, so far. What are the biggest challenges uh, on an individual basis, you know, for treatment? Um, you know, the themes that you see come up, and what are the biggest success factors that you see?
2: Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yeah, I, one of the, th- I mean, one of the things that is really challenging, and this may seem petty, but uh, for the population that we serve, uh, transportation is a huge issue. Mm. And that's another, mm. that, that methadone um, really doesn't work in a lot of rural areas. Um, if you've had a substance abuse problem for a long time, you've had DUIs and you might have lost your license. Um, or if you're in a position where you can't afford a car, getting someplace every day that's 30 or 40 minutes from your house is not going to happen. Um, so that's why I think buprenorphine is key, um, to kind of convenience cause people go once a week or once a month. Um, we also have found that our group structure and our community is really, really helpful for people being connected with other folks who can give you a ride, um, becomes central, uh, to getting to meetings. And I think that, I think that the biggest thing that in terms of I mean that ties into what the biggest determination for anyway. success is, is having other people in your community, whether they're your family, although sometimes that's not the best people <laughs> for you to be hanging out with, right? <laughs> really triggered up to triggered on the way there, uh, triggered
1: on the way back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the most important thing is to find community and from people who will put you first and will 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 help you through what's going to be a difficult time of rebuilding your life, and I think it often manifests as getting a ride or a helping hand here or there. And the the favors can sometimes be small, but it's much more about the camaraderie. Yeah. With others. Yeah. And if I had th- one biggest piece of advice for people, it would just be to not white knuckle your recovery and not you know just stay in by yourself and feel like you can't see anybody because you need to. You need to hang on for dear life. You have to find other people to be with. Um, yeah. And joining a group, if you don't want to go to AA, fine. But you need to go somewhere and be with other people. You need to at least volunteer somewhere or get out and make friends with people um, because being on your own. Who are doing
1: what you're doing. Yeah, specifically who are exactly. like going through what you're going through. yeah, Exactly.
2: Awesome.
1: So
0: that's what we, that's what we had. I mean, this is... Did we miss anything? Is there anything that you want to talk about that we didn't ask you about?
2: I mean, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, Um, I know.
0: (laughs) It's, I I mean, um, it's, um, it's amazing because this is something that we've never talked about. It's not, it's not, not, not once. Um, so we have no experience I'm yeah,
2: so, ourselves. So was in that perspective. Then that's wonderful.
0: It is, and what you're doing is just. I mean, what you're doing is amazing. What you're doing is so deeply important, and okay. and so. And, it's just so, I mean, I don't know if our reader, readers, our listeners can actually grasp that, but that whole system, you know, like our doctors prescribing medication that they're unable to help us recover from once we become addicted to it, and then also shutting us out of the healthcare system once we do become addicted to it, um, is such a, it's it's such a, it's it's gross. It's it's one of the, you know, biggest tragedies that we're facing right now, and I and for it it is and for you to have seen this, you saw this when you were in medical school. I mean, that's one of the other things we didn't really talk about was that you started doing this while you were in your where you were in um, medical school, right?
2: Yeah, I started the I started the practice when I was still a student. Yeah, um, and had no real intention of it growing in the way that it did, but the need was so overwhelming, yeah. um, and and I think that one of the things. You know, we've been able to grow so quickly, not just because so many people need help, but also because when you when you're on a mission to help other people, you get really surprised by folks stepping up and and doing favors for you and helping you in, in ways that you never would have expected. So I think that um, if we were starting a another software company, we might not have been as as lucky and as helped by people as we have. Yeah. It's, it's so
0: better. true. It's so true. It's really, and it's, I was just talking about this last week. Um, it is, it's true. When you're trying, it's it's amazing the amount of support that you can get when you're trying to fulfill something like like this and what you're doing. Um, but it's just, it's so important. And thank you so much for your work. And thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you for
1: coming on. Yeah, thank you
0: yes. for taking an hour yeah. out of your very busy yeah. life to talk to us about yeah. it.
2: Um, My pleasure. Any Anytime. It's always fun to feel like uh, Dr. Drew or someone? Yeah.
1: Yes. I was going to say, do you like Dr. Drew? <laughs> oh,
2: I was, I was obsessed with Dr. Drew when I was a kid. I loved him. <sighs> Me too. Well, He's I actually, love yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. the love line, oh my God. He actually has done, has an amazing body of work at this point. He, I don't know if you listened to, if you followed him recently, but he did an interview maybe within the last year on Mark Maron's um, WTF podcast and it's, it would probably be wonderful for you to listen to just because he goes through, I mean, he's been in the addiction space since he started, right? And he's been, he's not been a
0: diehard, like, AA, isn't he like, AA is the only way kind of
1: doctor? No. Hmm. No. And he's, um, no, he's not, but he's, I mean, he talks about it, but he's done a lot of different, he's worked in, um, addiction for decades now. Hmm. Um, yeah. it's just, it's an, and the criticism he has had and his sort of poker is, I don't know. It might be interesting. Maybe I can give you something <laughs> I would <not laughs> listening listen. to it. And it's yeah. at least funny. Like they have a really funny conversation too.
2: Yeah. I, the thing I always really appreciated about him was how he made, um, or his shows made really taboo and embarrassing topics, very accessible. Yeah. And he also yeah. provided despite whatever kind of, I mean, everybody has their flaws, but he's providing rather high quality medical information to people, which is pretty hard to come by um, in this day and age.
1: <laughs> totally, yeah, it's, um, yeah, he, he, and he definitely has endured a lot of, um, you know, he opened the gates. regardless of what, you know, what we thought a love line or of all of it, he opened the gates for a lot of what we're all doing now. So,
2: yeah, anyway, I, I want to be on with the posse uh, That's what. I want to like he would always do. It. That would be great.
1: You want? I'm
0: sorry. What did you say? It cut out.
2: Oh, oh he would always do um, shows with like insane clown posse and ridiculous people. So that's that's
0: the Insane clown posse. Yeah. I forgot oh about my dad. god! Uh, uh.
1: Wow. Oh yeah. Uh. Anyway, where do thank- you Where do you live now, Jeff? Are you in New Hampshire, or are you not?
2: Oh, you're in New, York? In New York. Yeah, we have. A okay. Yeah,
1: right. I met him last week in person. Yeah, I know that, but I didn't know if that's where you lived or. Yeah,
2: cool, so I'm yeah, in Boston. You're at the conference. Oh, I, I'm from Boston. I go back there all the time.
1: Oh, where from?
2: Um, Watertown. Nice. Okay, so yeah, I live really so, in yeah, what a, what a, <laughs> I live in, uh, in
1: Swampscott for sure. Oh, cool. infinitely
0: so